Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is The Lightning of Possible Storms, a collection of short fiction that reads like a novel. It includes stories about a mad scientist trying to steal his son's dreams, a story where a personification of capitalism is trying to impress his boss by winning a contest at work, a story about a Hollywood producer who just decides to adapt a bunch of explosions, uh, and many other stories, some funny, some terrifying, Salima Nawaz uh, says that it's cheerfully horrifying and full of the unexpected. Suzette Mayer says it's beautifully written and expertly composed. And I say, uh, it's time you read this book. I've been working on it for almost 20 years, and I'm excited to share it with you. So please go to PossibleStorms.com. Again, that's PossibleStorms.com, and you'll find out a lot more about this book and some of the bonuses that you can get when you buy this book. Let's get on with the show. You're recording now. I'm recording now. I'm here talking to Kevin McPherson Eckhoff. And uh, thanks so much for talking to me, Kevin. What I wanted to talk to you about uh, was a couple of things, but one is just basic things I think is interesting about the stuff you do is that uh, one, you use a lot of unconventional, more unusual experimental compositional techniques. Um, and then two, you have a real humorous <laughs> kind of twist on things. So I just wonder if you could just talk a bit about how you approach, uh, just writing something. You know, where Thank do you, you come up with Jonathan, these uh, Dr. things and the, and the approaches you take, like why take the approaches you take? Say, say in a poem, like, um, uh, you're complete in legal Canadian immigration kit where you're, you know, working with all this gobbledygook, uh, or how to build a bomb shelter where you've got these like you know, instructions to, for origami, but then you have put, you know, instructions for a bomb shelter underneath or, or, you know, your unscramble poem where you have these sort of words and this sort of weird jumbling of the words, the reverse of an unscramble, right. You know, going from kind of a sensible word to a, to a jumbled kind of nonsense word. So, so where do you kind of, uh, how do you kind of begin writing works like that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this question, and I am not at all stalling while I think of an answer. <laughs> what an honor it is to be here. Welcome to me, to everybody, from me to you. Um, well, that those pieces in that anthology, they come from my second book, Easy Peasy. And that book was very much, I think, written as a direct response to my first book. So my first book was my, my graduate thesis, my MA thesis, and it's visual poems. And they both were kind of written in the same way where I was interested in, well, my, okay. The, my first book, Rhapsodomancy, as a version of my master's thesis, because it was a graduate thesis, it's, it's, it's just embracing maniacally literary theory in a way that that I think made it somewhat the concepts that are underneath it somewhat kind of inaccessible or just 
made it a, a, a graduate level book in some ways. And that book is doubly obscured because of that. And it's, and it's the, the, the material that it's playing with, which is uh, shorthand writing style, which nobody really knows much about anymore. So that's already kind of like, what the fuck? And then the underlying concepts are like, what the heck? And it's this double fuck heck going on. Um, and so what I really wanted for Easy Peasy was a book that like my parents could maybe enjoy, something that was just pure silly, like something the kids could get into. And so my my throughout that book, my main force was just how can I be silly and playful? And so some of those pieces come from the first section, which is called uh, Do It Yourself. And so I wanted pieces that were kind of interactive and in a way that folks could actually, like when, I, when it was published, I thought maybe as like swag for the book, I could get crowns, like a set of three crowns, like what uh, restaurants will sometimes give out with easy peasy on them so that people could actually like color in the black and white drawings and do the scramble or the unscramble rather. Um, also, in thinking about something that was more pop culture based rather than literary theory based, I mined the Urban Dictionary for a lot of pieces too. So like the gobbledygook in the Canadian Immigration Citizenship Kit piece is, is I think that one maybe contains mm, some Urban Dictionary stuff, maybe not. Um, so so my, my underlying oomph for, for a lot of those pieces in that book was let's make it playful, let's take expectations and sort of shake them up a little bit, but doing so with forms that don't need too much, really don't need decoding, like a word scramble people are familiar with, how-to steps for how to do something, like on WikiHow, we're familiar with that trope, and so we can play around with it. That piece, I, I was just curious about what it would be like to create some bizarre paradox where you take something that is elegant, beautiful, and handmade, and pair it with something that is sort of mass destruction and so that well let me just put it talk a little bit more about that particular piece because <laughs> you say on one hand oh, this is a very playful book it's fun it's you know, uh, you know it's not and, and so on but at the same time in that bomb shelter piece you know keep in mind we've got the origami uh, mm. art of origami this japanese art yes. and then we have instructions for a bomb shelter and of course you know japan the nation that was bombed not once but twice atomically you know, I heard about the most that. need of a bomb shelter yeah. in a certain respect. Uh, so I think there's an interesting political charge to that and an interesting kind of weird, you know, almost sad irony to it, as well as it being kind of a funny, silly piece on one hand. So I'm wondering, like, in what ways do you, tr what, what, what ways do you think it's important to try to draw those, like, poles together in that manner of speaking? Because you don't always just... You're not always just going for jokes, if that makes That's sense. That's true. I'm right? not. Like, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> there is like a, a depth and an interesting, like, uh, almost a melancholy level to a lot of those pieces. There's another piece in that in that section of that book. Dang, Nabbit, I wish I had a copy here with me. I can't remember what the piece is called because I'm such a loser in that Easy book. Easy peasy. Years I've ago. got it. Oh, nice butt. <clears throat> I don't know if it helped you, but... <laughs> might help me but as you're exactly. thinking about it i'll try to look it up it's the piece um that plays around with the um kind of ableist language so it's it's blinded by science i think it takes Is these do it yourself 
And it's in do it yourself. And I think it's a guide to using language. It's got numbered sentences. And you, the first one is a quote from a song. I think he was blinded by science or something like that. And so I was thinking also kind of politically in terms of the kinds of metaphors we use and how they're charged with a kind of ableist language. And what would that be like if we turned other ailments, which were less politically acceptable for talking about what if we verbed them or what if we talked about them as offhandedly as these other metaphors that we just use every day? So there's one. There's so I'll read, I can read it to you if you want. So it's no. called planning. No, it's called planning for the weekend. Yeah. Uh, so a, when you feel like you're in love, you might say she blinded me with science. B, if you lose your keys, cry out. I am deafened by the logs. I suppose you watch two people walk along a beach at night. You can speculate aloud. His thoughts will paraplegic her body. Okay, stop there. It's so on, right? But you—that's the thing. So you're starting increasingly to use like these uh, instead of like things people say, like deafened and blinded. You move into like, you know, the death of my sister has Down syndrome me, and and this guy totally just Michael J. Foxed me. You know, you kind of start to move in that. Yeah, that. Yeah. So what direction. if we talked about these other ailments or, yeah, these other th- conditions that people live with and make their lives super challenging? What if we talked about them as offhandedly as these other metaphors we're comfortable about? And so that is kind of an interrogation of the language we use every day and whether we're not whether or not we're conscious of it or how conscious we are of it. So it's still meaning to be playful, like turning Michael J. Fox into a verb. Yeah, but there nice. are there are some. There are some um, underlying motivations that are more serious, I suppose, in terms of let's think about the language we're using. But, but, but I think what it appeals to me about humor, and not all my stuff tries to be super funny, hoopy honey, but that the same idea in comedy of of taking an issue that would be kind of heavy, maybe to actually talk out as though it was an issue and and present an alternative expand, uh, perspective on it without without announcing it or without people realizing that's what you're doing necessarily after you're done reading you're like wait a second was that political i'm not sure and comedy is you know brilliant for doing that so that's what appeals to me about sneaking that stuff in sometimes i often say the best writers today are comedians and rappers and comedians because of course they're always you know often often like just on the writing craft level they're doing incredibly complex and adept things, uh, but very, you know, uh, quickly and in a way where you don't even necessarily notice them. But once, if you, as you know yourself, you know, being a big fat student of comedy, uh, but like, and, and you know, you perform stand-up comedy as well, right? But like, you know that like the uh, the craft of that is, you know, incredibly uh, jam-packed, and there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, but it doesn't seem so, right? Like so much of it is about kind of misleading the audience and, and moving the, and as you say, kind of setting up an expectation and then turning it. I think humor is so uh, useful a technique in writing because it, it really does allow for that um, uh, humor. Like joke structure really makes you on some subconscious level, pay attention to where the language is going. And then you kind of anticipate the end of the line and then you'll get, it gets replaced. Right. Yeah. Uh, Is that's your basic setup punch uh, structure where you don't quite see the thing coming, but you're yet being prepared for it in a certain respect. And so I think it's, it's interesting, you know, uh, to bring that 
uh, into a into a poetry which is thought of as a humorless you know, field. I mean, it isn't, but it is, I think the perception of it in the culture is that humor is where you go for sincerity. Right. Or, I think or not humor, tricky. sorry, poetry is where you go for sincerity. Yeah, no, exactly. That's it. I think it's tricky to be funny in poetry because the purpose of poetry is to be heartfelt or to be serious or to meditate and reflect. And so even if you try to write funny poems, people at first read will be like, oh, that's hilarious. But what is it? Then it's always that. What does it mean, though? Like, what is... So some of them, I'm just in that book, especially just trying to be kind of silly. But you talk, yeah. Sorry, you were saying, but no, no, there's some political stuff as you pointed out is in there. Mm -hmm. But there's other things that are just like the 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 unscramble piece where the words are already put in their normal order. That's just meant to be kind of playful and just like think of maybe think about things from alternate perspectives and just have fun and interact and explore. Well, what I like about that particular piece is that it is, it, it really is putting the reader in the position of the poet in a sense, like, you know, the reader is the one that has to come up with the creative act. Yeah. You were just, you were just taking a word. You're like, oh, well, uh, vascular. <laughs> and like the reader is the one that has to turn that into something interesting, you know, and unusual and, and neat. My favorite is I, that's like, <laughs> you gotta unscrap. <laughs> But, you know, I try to imagine like a reader that would, you know, maybe find some way to do that. Right. Like, I think it's an interesting uh, poem. Again, it just is a joke on a simple kind of surface level. But there's like this other way in which it really is kind of encouraging the reader to participate in creating something. Like, here's a word that already existed, but you have to create something, you know, as a reader, yeah, as think, a, which is normally the poet's job. I think, yeah, there's and I think that that sort of goes back to have you ever heard of BP Nickel? Oh, I've heard of him. But why don't you tell people who haven't? Uh, okay, B.P. Nickel was this poet person, uh, sneaky poet dude uh, from 1944 to 1988. He was active in the 60s onward. He was the youngest person to ever win a governor general still, maybe? Is that? I believe so. I'm not sure. Right? I, I think he might have been beat recently by Billy Ray Belcourt, but I'm not oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. He, uh, he was a visual poet. He was a sound poet. He wrote novels, kids' books. He worked on Fraggle Rock, if anyone knows what that is. Um, and there's a statement that he made early on in his career about what he wanted his writing to achieve, which was this kind of portal between himself and other. He wanted it to be this kind of conversation or this conduit to send energy back and forth. And so I, that's something early on in my writing career that I encountered and it really resonated with me. And so I, especially I think in this book really wanted a writing that was kind of more conversational, more back and forth. And maybe even if we go back to politics for a second, the, uh, the politics, the, one of the, one of the, one of the roles, one of, one of the responsibilities, one of the projections that people put on writers as writers is that they are the authority. They are the person who has this sort of unilateral communication exchange with the reader. And I, I am very curious, have been, still am, in finding ways to disrupt that and have it kind of be more back and forth in the moment. So that normally when you read a poem, you're, you, you sort of know you're supposed to be interpreting it or reading it, but not necessarily co-constructing it as literally as that and that's what i like about that piece and some of the mad libby kind of stuff in there and that's that's what i was really kind of navigating towards in that in that early section anyway 
So is that what draws you to these more unconventional structures? Because you're not really a guy who sits down and writes a normal looking poem for the most part. No. Right. Or, or even in a normal kind of straightforward way, I don't think often. Like, so one of my favorite projects you did was you went, (laughs) I remember when we were both at Calgary page doing graduate degrees in Calgary. Yeah. Um, you did a great project where I think it's an easy piece. I can't remember which book it's in, but where you, no. maybe it's forged, but where you, where you went around to the computers, like the, the shared common computers that and you, and you would just hit control V so that it would paste whatever the last person who used the computer had copied. And you just kept pasting it. And you just kept pasting like computer, computer, you just paste into a, into a file. Whatever the computers. last person. Yeah. yeah. Can, can you talk about that particular project and just what, just as an example of like, uh, how, how you came up with a weird odd idea and like how you kind of produce something out of that. Fuck me, Jonathan. I don't remember how I came up with that. I, it was probably by accident, which is how all the geniuses do it. I think I probably went to copy and paste something, but realized I'd forgotten to copy it and realized <gasps> I got someone else's gift of a text by, by just, which is weird. Cause I think you had to log in I don't remember. I remember you doing that specifically. And so you did, yeah, like a hundred computers. Yeah. So I just late, I think at 2am one night went around and just went from computer to computer, copying and pasting, emailing it to myself. I ended up calling it document one because every time I would paste it in a word, that's just what the default file name was. Um, It felt, I, I think, I think in terms of that notion of kind of disrupting the writer reader, uh, relationship. I've, I've always also been fascinated with finding writing practices that position me more in a role of a reader than a writer. So I think that's what it meant for me too. I thought maybe, uh, readers would be excited to read something that I would be excited to read, like these surprise files and phrases and also I got all sorts of stuff, personal emails, uh, essay snippets, statistics like just um, chemistry research biology research paper bits um and so it's a it's a zany manuscript that ended up resulting from that it's not cohesive necessarily i mean i i did play around with the structure and shuffle it around and reorganize a little bit i didn't change too much but um but that that maybe also as a process where um, i'm trying to put myself in the position of a reader as a writer for generating text, I think that that project was also kind of formative in my most re- formative for coming up with the concept of my most recent book, that uh, their biography, where I just actually asked people to write the book for me, and there's fifty or sixty contributors who who put put this book together, and I just you put my name on it. So, and, and it's that book people don't know their biography is uh, Kevin McPherson Eckhoff's biography, but it's all written by other people and most, and, and just more or less invented, fabricated completely. Some people who know you, some people who don't know you yeah. at all, writing yeah. your supposed biography. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it's yeah. a great project. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's but, still in print. Yeah. Is anybody Excellent. Wants to. You buy it, you mail it to me, I'll sign it, I'll lick it, I'll send it back to you. But it's a brilliant, um, uh, what I really like about some of the stuff you've done, I mean, you haven't invented invented necessarily 
every one of these compositional practices. Although some of them I haven't seen other people do, but, I'm, but you know, uh, but you know, it, it, what I think is interesting about the stuff you've done is um, it recalls BP Nickel to me. Like you recall BP Nickel to me in the sense of you've done so many different kind of, you have such a, a wide sort of, you know, a, a, amount of things you do like you haven't really had like one thing you've done consistently in any real way which, and which is really, really hasn't either really to my detriment i think because those people who just do the one thing and then get better <clears throat> at it with every project eventually they get some recognition for it i wouldn't know <laughs> because yeah, i don't I'm, I'm like you right <laughs> and i don't know i don't know i think i just i i think i would get bored trying to write the same kind of thing over and over again, the same kind of poem, the same, I don't know. I'm just too um, in love with invention. It's a know. great way to put it. And, 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 and um, when, what is one of the things that you just uh, attracted you in the first place to writing over other things? Cause you've done, I mean, you do other things you've done, you do acting, you've done uh, comedy and so on. But what do you like? What what first attracted you and interested you in writing specifically? I think in part, um, I I think it's sort of a confluence of factors. Like, um, I didn't need to. I think it was in part sort of growing up, um, w up without any sort of all any sort of community in any other art practice. Like if I had grown up in a spot where there had been lots of filmmakers, I might've gravitated to something filmy earlier. If I had lived in a spot that had lots of art galleries and art museums, I think I would have been very comfortable being an artist too. Uh, writing, I just, it was, it was, I could do it by myself. So I didn't need a crew. I could do it fairly cheaply. You just need paper and a pencil. I didn't need to spend a lot of money on supplies because I didn't have a lot of money. Um, and I could access books at the time when I started easier than I could access art galleries, uh, concert halls. Like uh, I would, I, yeah, I think it's just a lot of those kinds of um, social geo factors that the barriers to entry are so low with writing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's still barriers, but it is certainly much lower than, as you say, than putting a uh, million dollar film together or even, a you know, which a million dollars wouldn't even get you very far in <laughs> these days. You know, yeah. <laughs> it sounds big, but like you could spend a million bucks on craft services these days. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. Uh, compared to trying to do, you know, sitting, what I often will tell people when they do creative writing is like, or, or when they're acting even like, cause I, I teach a class where there's a lot of like uh, people in the theater and film department take this like story writing class I do. Yeah. And so um, they're, they're often actors and they're not interested in writing, but I'll cool. tell them you should learn to write because so that, you know, you can cast yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I know so many actors who like, they just couldn't get a break and then they huh. had, they, but then they started, they wrote a script somebody wanted and all of a sudden they've got some clout. Good to know. And they don't even want to be writers. You know, it's just, right. you know, that's what, uh, but th that's, it was just because it was a means to their end uh, in a manner of speaking. But it can, of course, you know, be the end. And I think that's what's interesting about 
um, your approach and the stuff you do is that you've got such a wide range of things that you do. You've got this interesting way of inviting the reader in. Uh, you're doing some very kind of sometimes very kind of serious interrogations of like a social or political or language issue, but then also they'll be very funny and readable at the same time, you know, and one could just read them and enjoy them and just miss all that if they wanted to as well. Right. You're talking about idiots. Well, well, I'm just saying like, I'm kidding. People, I'm just kidding. But you know what I'm saying? Like it's, yeah. it's, it is a way in which it's engaging potentially. Right. You, but you talked about visual art. Like you've got a lot of visual work here. You, I don't know if you've, you've probably stolen this work and you repurposed it in various ways. But you, you can like actually, you actually do visual art, and you do, um, you know, all sorts of. Uh, you do have all sorts of um, uh, visual qualities to your work. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your visual poetry. This is one of my favorite ones. It's just the keyboard with nothing on it. And, uh, <laughs> At the bottom, it says a temple without columns or a church without aisles. Yeah, um, I, I, I think I'm just a visual person. Um, a lot of a lot of my first book uh, involved hand drawn illustrations. So again, it's like the most economical way of making art. <laughs> and my my mom is an artist; she's a painter. So I think I don't know if it's genetics or um socialization whatever through that but i i just uh, i guess grew up paying some attention to visual culture and um and it and i knew i knew fairly early on in school um when i started taking writing that i was not very good at imitating which is what a lot of uh first and second year workshops kind of strive for is to find that perfect mcclellan and stewart or cbc cadence to the writing pace vocabulary like there's just here's what a canadian short story is supposed to sound like and other folks in the classes were pulling it off and i just it was sort of like trying to learn another language to me so that when i encountered bp nichols stuff for the first time then and i saw that he would just doodle an a on a page and then call it a sound poem it kind of it kind of blew my mind and i thought okay I, I can do that. I can't, I can't, um, you know, parrot these other sounds and writers, but I can come up with weird ideas. I can, I can doodle letters on a page and then perform them. So I think it also, I think in, in part, my, my connection to visual forms, but also um, experimental forms in general, I think came out of my uh, inability to imitate and a sort of more natural ability to innovate. It's so. interesting to me to hear you say that because the, the criticism so often of more experimental work is that it's somehow inaccessible. And yet it's really the only approach that doesn't demand that you try to understand it. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and like pull the meaning out of it, you know, it even yeah. attempts to frustrate you somehow or if you try to do, to read it in a normal way, like a normal person would. Uh, well, it's been so great talking to you, and I know you've got a, a class to go to, so what? I'll have to let no, you go. Screw that! I, I like this. <laughs> well, I don't want to go. As a last, uh, what is your kind of last uh, question? What is your recommendations to a person who is, you know, thinking of taking creative writing more seriously? Like, what do you advise? Because yeah, well, you teach writing. What is like, your yeah. sort of core advice to you know a new or younger uh, writer? Right. Well, what I tell all my students right off, like the first day of classes is I say, what you have to do 
is take a class with Jonathan Ball and then you're set. You're made. That's it. <laughs> you're made, man. You're Real made, Marion. Um, uh, why? I, seriously, the, the one thing, and I think this is true in any discipline, well, maybe not like other scholarly disciplines like chemistry or something, but in arts, it's really, you just got to keep doing it forever. Uh, I, in my undergrad, I'm not the best writer from my undergrad cohort. I don't think I'm the best writer from our graduate cohort years at Calgary, but I, I am one of the most published now just because I was stupid enough to keep going. And that's it. You just, you just keep going, keep reading, keep writing, keep sending stuff out. And I don't know. I sometimes tell people that the secret to success is you have to not die and not quit, but you can actually die. (laughs) If you die, you could still succeed. But if you quit, that's it. (laughs) Yeah. You might never, yeah. If you keep going, you might never succeed. um, And you know, win the Nobel prize, but you'll eventually, cause I know not just, not just me, I know yeah. lots of idiots who've somehow been able to publish lots, even though their writing sucks. So don't work <laughs> on your writing, work on your stubbornness. In some ways that's true, you know, yeah. because you're doing both at the same time, right? True. Writing, Quantity begets quality. Yeah. Kind of look at the Beatles. Yep. No, I, was, <laughs> I know you're saying that almost in jest, but like, it is true, right? I know. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Uh, I, it's my pleasure. I've got a final question for you. Oh, yeah. What's that? What does it feel like? To do what? To talk to you? It's great. Yeah, no. <laughs> I love yeah. the shirt and the hat is even yeah. better. Yeah. I can't pull off hats. I got, you got to gotta get a good you hat. You can give me some hat advice. Yeah, you, got you just some have good hair. shitty hair. That's the trick. I do have shitty. I, you know, no, I you have nice to... thick hair, but it's like, it's a bad haircut, right? Especially in the COVID times. No, the and trick is to white just have really shitty hair and then you're, you'll, you'll look, always look better in hats. Maybe what does I it just feel have like... too good hair. Man, I've been looking at it wrong. What does it feel like to have a book of short stories that will probably be shortlisted for all sorts of acclaim? Did you, well, I'm sure it's, uh, it's a foregone conclusion. And when I will win the Nobel Prize, I'll let you know. But uh, I've already written my Nobel Prize acceptance speech. Yeah. So, you know. All right. I'm just waiting for the opportunity. It'll happen. Just keep <laughs> writing. Just keep writing. Just keep writing. That's, thanks very much. Jonathan, you're the best. Your students, I'm sure, are the best. I'm sorry I kept doing this. It makes my hand look huge. I have normal-sized hands, just to clarify. Yeah.